Hello, and welcome to Get Me Another, a podcast where we explore those movies that followed in the wake of blockbuster hits and attempted to replicate their success. My name is Chris Iannacone, and with me, as always, is my co-host, Rob Lamorges. Abracadabra, everybody. (laughs) This is the third episode of our Get Me Another Halloween series, and today we'll be discussing two movies that both feature Halloween star Jamie Lee Curtis. Additionally, both films today were shot in Canada and both rely very heavily on red herrings and revenge, but in significantly different ways. First up is 1980s Prom Night. There's a special night in the lives of all of us. A night to be beautiful, to be desirable. A night we can break all the rules and make our own. Prom night. Everyone at Hamilton High is getting ready for prom night. It's a day of rehearsals, arrangements, final preparations, and last-minute phone calls. Someone still wants to play. Why? Kelly. It's been a long time tonight. It's my turn. Tonight, someone has come to the prom alone. Someone who watches in the silent corridors. Kelly. Help! Someone who waits until no one can help. Prom night. If you're not back by midnight, you won't be coming home. Written by William Gray and directed by Paul Lynch, Prom Night stars Jamie Lee Curtis, Casey Stevens, Eddie Benton, Michael Tuff, and Leslie Nielsen. The film was conceived of after director Paul Lynch met with Halloween producer Erwin Yoblins. Lynch wanted to produce a horror movie about a doctor who murders his patients, and Yoblins suggested building the premise around a holiday. I-, I can't imagine what gave him that idea. And thusly, Prom Night was born. Prom Night was an American-Canadian co-production that was shot in the Toronto area in the late summer of 1979. Now, the movie was shot in Canada, but is distinctly set in the United States, specifically Ohio. But nevertheless, I noticed like the cops' uniforms all look Canadian, like which is subtly different from the way American police are dressed. Like I'm not quite sure what it is, but there's a subtle difference, and I picked up on it. It's that red band on the on the uh, police cap. Uh, also, the uh, Canadian road sign appears at least once. That is very much <laughs> kilometers, not, not miles. Um, it's some sort of circle with a red band around it. Again, they love they love the red band up they there. They love the red bands. Uh, it's like what like I, me and trailers. I love the red <laughs> bands. Prom night proves my theory that the uh, when your movie is set in the U.S. but you aren't shooting here, uh, the number of American flags and like. <laughs> signage that just says America in some fashion, you're going to see just tons and tons of that used. By, I, uh, I was like, subject. I specifically looked up what flag was in Leslie Nielsen's office. And I was like, oh, that's Ohio. <laughs> 
Uh, now, I am not from the Midwest. Uh, Rob is from the Midwest. Uh, Rob, I have, and I know that Ohio and Iowa are not the same, but are, I noticed- You are very- rare in, in, in that belief for most Americans who really, oh. they're just like, too many vowels, uh, my brain has shut off, you're the same state. There's a serious vowel problem that apparently I can't say the word vowel. Um, but what I, very prominent in prom night are these cliffs, like these bluffs, like looking over what appears to be the sea. And I'm like, where in Ohio is that? Like, is there, is like where there's no ocean. I mean, you know, I mean, I, I, I could be wrong. And apparently it was shot. You, do have, you do have a great lake. You have a great lake there. Yeah, but how, but is, is it, I still is believe. It, is one of the great, great lakes or is it just a lesser great lake? No, it's one of the five. I can't tell you which one, if it's like Erie or whatever. It's it's not Superior. I, it's not Michigan. But what I what I can say is that most of the Midwest is fairly famous for having been flattened by a glacier in the last ice age. So there it are happens. nooks and crannies, uh, but those cliffs are probably Hollywood lies, Chris. Well, apparently they are in Ontario. There's apparently some significantly high bluffs in Ontario, and that's where this was shot. But I'm still wondering, like, how a high school ended up on such obviously valuable property. Like, this is this is waterfront property, and they put a high school there. Prominent was released in July of 1980, about two months after Friday the 13th. Uh, and like Friday the 13th, Prom Night begins with a flashback. In this case, to a group of children playing in an abandoned building. Now, for our, our listeners out there, kids, don't play in abandoned buildings. You could get tetanus. I'm just saying. Or you could fall out a second story window and get crushed by glass. But um, a word of warning, don't play in abandoned buildings. Yeah, especially don't play the game Killer in an abandoned building. I've never building. heard. This game is so weird. It's like, it's like hide and seek, but everybody chanting kill, kill, kill while they try to find the person that's hiding. I'm like, it's, it's this demented hide and seek, and I don't know what it is. Anyway, the kids are soon joined by 10-year-old Robin Hammond, who as part of the game, basically, she is teased and tormented to the point where it results in her falling to her death from a second-story window. And the other four children, Wendy, Jude, Kelly, and Nick, all decide not to get help but and, and to never speak of the incident again for fear of going to jail. But what the kids don't know is that someone else was there and saw what happened. Uh, we then jump forward about six years, and the four kids from the opening, along with Robin's sister Kim and her twin brother Alex, are all in high school, and prom night is approaching which coincidentally falls on the anniversary of Robin's death. The four children involved in her death begin receiving threatening phone calls, asking if they still like to play games. Uh, Prom Night, I don't know about Rob, Rob, I thought Prom Night was basically like one part Halloween, one part Carrie, and one part Saturday Night Fever. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, but the fever was very low grade. Uh, I... uh... It was not a hot, <laughs> hot running fever for me. I love that dance sequence. We'll talk about more of that in a oh, little bit. But like, yeah. I, I love that dance sequence. What I think is particularly interesting about Prom Night, and in relation to the movies we talked about in our first two episodes, is that there is a culpability to the killer's targeted victims. Like in Halloween, the, the victims are completely innocent and seemingly targeted at random, at least according to the first film. And in Friday the 13th, 
Mrs. Voorhees is seeking revenge for a legitimate wrong done to her, the negligence that led to the death of her son, but she's seeking revenge against people who are in no way responsible for that act. In Prom Night, the killer's specifically targeting the people who committed that initial injustice. And even if we regard Robin's fall as an accident, the kids didn't immediately try to help her or go get help or anything, and it kind of makes them culpable to some degree. Uh, It 100% makes them culpable. Uh, That whole opening in relation to, because Halloween kind of had that opening uh, death. Um, You get a version of it in that first 20 minutes of uh, When a Stranger Calls. Um, Mm -hmm. He Knows You're Alone. I mean, they're trying to get married. Yeah, Friday the 13th. What I find interesting in this one, one giant key difference is the this opening uh, death, which then is the motivation for the killer, uh, that part, very much like the movies that came before, what is very unlike it is this opening death is not a scare sequence. It is not crafted yeah. to be... It's not, it's not me saying, oh, I didn't find it scary... It's not crafted to be scary. It is crafted at like maybe tense, sure, where you're, what? you know, the, the kids are going after each other um, in a kind of a Lord of the Flies way. But it is not in trying to scare the audience. And I, I thought that no. was kind of kind of, you know, different. Yeah, no, it's it's an interesting thing. It's much more about the, the seeds of revenge than it is a scare sequence. Uh, I do think one thing the movie I think did really well was visually connecting the younger versions of the characters with their teenage counterparts. Not just that they like cut back and forth, but like, um, you know, one of them wears a very conspicuous cross in both her child and teenage version. Yeah, one's got like giant curly hair because it was, you know, the late 70s, early 80s. And, you know, that was that was in fashion. Uh, of the four kids involved in the accident, Nick is now taking Kim Hammond, that's Jamie Lee Curtis's character, uh, and Robin's sister to the prom. Uh, Kim and Jude and Kelly are all still friendly, and Wendy has grown up into the prototype for every rich 80s mean girl, and honestly really reminded me of one of the nasty girls from Carrie. Yeah, and uh, just to go back to that uh i will not flashback but the opening uh she is the character who stops them if i'm not mistaken yeah uh, from I reporting right. she's the one who says we can't tell anyone ever and she gets uh kind of bullies the others onto being on board with it yeah yeah no it's true now this is where we need to say up front we're going to be talking about the identity of the killer so if you haven't seen prom night and want to do so unspoiled Hit pause now and come back to us after. It is readily available on Shudder, um, is also available on, on Blu-ray. So, uh, and, and and it's an interesting movie, um, but if you want to not know who the killer is, we're going to get into that very shortly. If you want to be surprised by exactly which minute the split diopter shot occurs in, also <laughs> pause and go watch it, because I'm totally going to tell you where the split diopter falls in this movie. That's honestly, this is our job here. This is what we do: split diopters and body counts. Um, you know, it's it's get me another Halloween. Um, I had seen this movie before, but it had been a number of years, so I didn't remember all the details. I did remember who the killer was, but as a consequence of that, I can't remember feeling if when I was watching it, if the killer's identity was blindingly obvious 
Or is that just a vestigial byproduct of something that, I, you know, of, of me already knowing who the identity was? And I was glad when you were like, oh, yeah, I thought I had seen this movie, but I hadn't. Yeah, I, by the way, my first time, I was a prom night virgin. Uh, and I never saw it because I mistakenly thought that I had. I think I mashed up. Anyway, I'd mixed other movies in my mind and thought I'd seen Prom Night. I had seen Prom Night 2, Hello, Mary Lou. Uh, I still haven't <laughs> seen that. I'm going to watch. That's also on Shudder, and I'm going to watch that Very, soon. very different movie. but that's, That is fun. what I heard. It is not super in any fun. way related to the original. Yeah. So, But on the point of the killer, um, I, I will be honest, which is that um, I did... I thought I, I gave two possibilities. I was like, it's either the guy they set up as being their Michael Myers... But probably not, because they're doing it so blatantly. While yes. there are other red herrings, they all feel like they're red herrings because, like, they get a close-up that they shouldn't. Yeah. And there's yeah. there's one, in that opening sequence, there's one very obvious uh, character who's present and then unaccounted for later that they never hint as a red herring. And that is a red flag. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> because yeah. They, they set someone up early as, like, wait, they would have been around, they could have seen it, and then they completely ignore it, and that's how you know where they're hiding Well, let's ball. let's talk about some of the possible killers. The the, the first, like, uh, the, the one who gets the Steve Christie award for the most obvious suspect who turns out to be completely innocent is the gardener, the, the, the kind of slightly creepy uh, school gardener who, at one point, one of the girls, after a tennis meet, flashes their butt to uh, for reasons I still didn't quite get but hey and he's only a, a red herring suspect because the camera focuses on him like he there's no hint of a motivation there's no hint of why he like it's just hey this guy looks kind of creepy he has tape across the bridge of his glasses so therefore the audience is going to think he's a suspect um which is kind of the crappiest way to do a red herring yeah it's more of a more of a dusty rose herring, I think. Uh. <laughs> uh, now, we also have, you mentioned the character who is, um, they, they, they have a character, Leonard Murch, who was a sex offender who is suspected in actually killing Robin Hammond um, and was badly burned while he was being pursued by the police for that crime. Uh, and we learn that he recently escaped from a psychiatric facility and the police fear he may be returning to town. But here's the thing. We never even really see that guy. Like we see a kind of guy in a bed, like, you know, with like bandages on his body, but like we never see him. And then the cops get a message that he's caught in the middle of the prom. Uh, although he, the cops seem to think he's the most likely suspect, but he just, he seems so obviously not that, you know, it's like, come on. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I just, I'm gonna full hard agree on that one, Chris. It is, uh, again, it's, it's like the most obvious stakes in the ground are planted, but then they don't bother to develop it at all, uh, and so it just doesn't feel right now. Because because this movie is different from Friday the Thirteenth and its red herrings in that this movie is did set up who the real killer was you have met the real killer uh yes. whereas friday the 13th is kind of uh really a, a a magic trick that you cannot figure out seeing the movie the first time if you don't know uh this one you can and yeah. so th therein lies the, the rub which is when you have real clues 
and then you kind of have less quality clues. Uh, You can actually see the difference because it's an A, B within the movie itself. Exactly. Which brings me to our next, next possible suspect, which is Lou, the Neanderthal student who at one point sexually assaults Kim in the cafeteria. Um, and Alex, uh, the brother, actually punches the guy out. What was so weird is that, you know, like they both get hauled to the principal's office and Lou claims, oh, you started it. And then Alex like agrees, like, yeah, I started it, like, because he threw the first punch. But man, he's, you started it by unwantingly kissing his sister. Like, I don't have a sister, but if some guy kissed her in the cafeteria in an obviously like aggressive manner that she didn't like, I'd be up in his grill too. Lou, not the best classmate to have. Uh, <laughs> uh, not that they'll have him as a classmate for long, because then he gets... No. Uh, they, they do give him the added motivation now where he has been um, suspended or expelled. Anyway, he's gone from school. Leslie Nielsen's not having it anymore. I think he's suspended. Because he was still able to go to prom. prom. Oh, that's true. That's true. Um, but, oh, we should mention that that uh, Kim and Alex's father, who's played by Leslie Nielsen, is also the school principal. Um, and I, I want to mention, this is one of Leslie Nielsen's last serious roles uh, before turning towards comedy with Airplane, which was released the same summer. Now, people think of Leslie Nielsen, you know, you know, as as a largely comic actor. But he had a long dramatic career. Uh, before before Airplane used him to such great effect as 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 a straight man. Uh, so in terms of red herrings, we have the burn guy, uh, we have the creepy gardener, we have Unibrow, and we have Frank Drebin because you know in theory they kind of want you to think that maybe the father you know because it is his daughter and you know um, oh I want it's it's in the scene where Lou and Alex get hauled to the principal's office that we're introduced to the black ski mask that the killer will wear during his prom massacre. Here's my question. Why is it sparkly? It is a sparkly black mask, and I want to know why. Of all the choices in this movie, the sparkly mask is the one that is the most... I don't understand it. I love it, but I don't understand it. Well, you know, plain black is just so boring. It's flat on film. You add some some sparkle and now you're bedazzled you're cooking with gas yeah (laughs) um oh also nick who is one of the four kids who was involved and is now dating kim her uh, nick's father is a detective lieutenant mcbride and every time i hear them say mcbride all i can think of is mcbain from the simpsons mcbain um but like he's the one who's convinced that it's this leonard Murch guy uh and he's just kind of Honestly, he seems like a not very. He he seems not quite as ineffective a cop as uh as the lieutenant as the lieutenant from He Knows You're Alone, but he's kind of running a strong second. He he's like a non murderous Charles Durning from When a Stranger Calls. <laughs> he does some shoe leather. He'll 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 stand in a room and look around and say things, uh, and that's his detective work. Uh, which by the way is all completely wrong, um, but. <laughs> But, you know, I, I kind of forgive him a little bit more than uh, than Detective Staten Island. Yeah. What, oh, yeah. No, he's he's better. He's a better. No, nobody's a worse cop than Detective Staten Island. But what bothered me the most about a, a Lieutenant McBain or McBride is how much he looked like real life villain Roy Cohn. And it bothered the shit out of me. It was just like all I could see was Roy Cohn. And I'm like, ah, it's upsetting. 
Oh, I I do not know Roy Cohn's face uh, in my mind, so I have to. Oh, look he looked like that guy. Yeah, and uh, and oh it's uh, it's you know, I mean, honestly, that guy should have. It's probably the he's probably gone now, but the opportunity he would have been great. It's like the one man show of Roy Cohn back in the day. This movie's kind of slow until you get to the prom. And then once you get to the prom, it picks up. What's e- the first on-screen murder? It's not not talking about the death of the of 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 Robin at the beginning, but the first on-screen murder is an hour and two minutes into a 90-minute movie. That's 22 minutes after the split diopter shot. Yes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh. it, it beats Halloween's 53 minutes until Annie's death. Um, but I was like, it, it, it's an incredibly long time. Um, and it, it's interesting because I feel like they needed, they, they wanted to hold the murders till the prom. So, and they couldn't have the prom take up like the whole second act of the movie. So ends up pushing all the murders to the third act. And it's, it's a weird, it gives this weird pacing thing with this movie. <sighs> In watching this movie, I'm I'm not apparently a huge prom night fan. I'll just be I'll just be honest. Um, this movie has such a reputation that I maybe was uh, my expectations were set too high. I frankly I don't know how this movie gets talked about more than our next one, Terror Train, as far as uh, Jamie Lee Curtis movies. But agreed, this one it's not the number of murders or when the murders happen. As you pointed out, Halloween you get a very scary early kill. to to open it and then you're building right but the thing is is those 53 minutes leading up to annie's death and halloween are almost all tense yeah there is tension throughout um we're seeing the stalking happen we're seeing laurie we're put in laurie's paranoia we're with loomis as he's finding really bad stuff Mm -hmm. um uh, and which means that he's at locations where we know Michael has been and is Michael still there? Question mark. So right. you have all of this tension, even though Lori and the girls don't know that a killer's coming for them. Lori's getting spooked and was wondering if there's a creepy guy, but she doesn't know. In this movie, I, again, I don't think most of that time, those scenes are not crafted to be scary or tense for the most part. There's a, like a little... A little here and there peppered in. I'm not saying there's zero, but there's whole swaths that feel like it's Degrassi Junior High with no threat of anything happening on the killy kill front, you know? Yes. Yes, absolutely. Now, once things get to the prom, it it starts to... Because then you're able to separate out characters and, oh, because obviously once, once a kill is known at prom, that's generally the end of prom. I mean, in most schools. But because you can send people off to different parts of the school, you can you can do a thing. And and but I want to talk about prom for a second. Now this movie was made in late 1979, released in the summer of 1980. Disco. The prom's theme is disco madness, and there is a four minute disco sequence in the middle of this movie. The movie stops cold for four minutes. To have a scene of of primarily Jamie Lee Curtis doing some serious disco moves, and it is sublime. It is so awesome that when I finished the movie, I went back and rewatched the disco sequence because it was great. It is a great sequence on its own, so it's instantly I'm like being entertained, so I'm fine with it. 
But also, I, I would argue that there, whether or not this was intended, it actually helps than all of the horror prom sequence cat and mouse stuff. Because yes. you get that moment of prom being fucking awesome, like yeah. it's supposed to be, or like you hope it would be. Uh, and then and then the killing starts and the terror and the screaming and the clawing Chris. It's uh you know, so the getting running, the contrast the I think is good. <laughs> yes. Um yeah, and then you get you get some and one by one, basically the four responsible kids it starts starting with kelly i think it's the first and then uh you have uh the second murder happens it's jude and her boyfriend in, in the van outside on oh, school grounds that poor guy and that, that poor, poor guy. guy and I, I actually really like those characters i'm like you know it's she just meets this guy she's clearly not that experienced i and he Honestly, I that was the one where I kind of I felt I was like, oh man, you know, like I mean, I know she's culpable and all that, but like, and and I just thought they they like seem to be really like met and hit it off, and honestly, more than anything else, I love the van. Yeah, Rob, there was a time when all you needed to make a TV show was put a couple of cool characters in a van and have them drive around and get in adventures, and I long for those days. I long for van-centric adventure shows and the type of van that they have in this movie is just the sort of sweet, sweet, late 70s, early 80s van that you want. Absolutely. The, uh, that van, I will say, there's another thing I just want to call out is uh, when the killer, the killer's already killed her and he's, the boyfriend's trying to drive away in the van and the killer's uh, attacking while the driving's going on, which is a wonderful sequence. Yes, it's uh, really good. But it does end with that van falling off of one of those cliffs of Ohio. Well, as soon as I saw the cliffs of Ohio, I was like, someone's going over. Oh, yeah. Chekhov's cliffs of Ohio. Uh, And as the van goes over, you do not need to pause the movie. As, As long as you're teed up, you will see it with the naked eye. That thing explodes well before it hits the ground. Uh Uh, uh, that's all I'm going to say. That's all I'm going to say. I think the, that knife was explosive or something. Uh, there's another, there's a, the, the, the third murder is Wendy, who is the, the girl, um, who, who has kind of orchestrated the whole thing. And it's a sort of prolonged chase scene through like the auto shop and she hides in one of the cars and it's, it's very good. I want to mention that Wendy and Lou, uh, Wendy and, and Monobrow Glue are planning to embarrass Kim and Nick at the prom. The, Kim and Nick are the king and the queen of the prom. And the plan seems, this is what I wasn't sure, the plan seems to be knocking them both out and replacing them on stage. An act which in my head would garner not only like swift punishment at school, including maybe expulsion, but also like assault charges. Because, like, they're actually, like, hit, like they hit Nick over the head, and they seem to be planning to do the same to Wendy. Yeah, it was the 1980s, Chris. Uh, late 70s, early 80s. Like, babies, they had baby fighting. Um, they, uh, <laughs> it was a different time. Oh, man. But, of course, the killer intervenes, and their nefarious scheme does not go to plan. Because Wendy's dead by the point where Lou and his buddies knock out Nick and replace him. And the killer, thinking it's Nick, comes up with an axe and takes Lou's head clean off. 
The head actually flies through the curtains and lands smack in the middle of the prom stage. How the killer made this mistake when Nick has light curly hair and Lou has dark straight hair and a unibrow, we'll never know. And and just the added dimension you don't get uh, from watching a movie. The other thing uh, is that uh, Lou smokes like a chimney and Nick <laughs> does not. You yeah, would, you would smell that it's not Nick from a while away. Although I guess maybe it's a prom night and you go, eh, maybe you had a. I mean, I guess maybe. Yeah, but yeah. like, then pandemonium erupts at the prom and everybody's running out. This leads to a fight on stage between the mass killer and Nick and Kim. And the moment where Kim, and I loved this. I thought this was great. The moment where Kim, despite the killer wearing a mask, recognizes that he is in fact her brother. Alex. Dun, dun, dun. And I, I thought it was great because you know what? Masks can can conceal a lot, especially at a distance or people you don't know. But like close up, like she looks him right in the eyes and she knows who it is because that's what would actually happen. Yeah. And in, in addition, it's a really nice piece of filmmaking in that spot, too, just with the the shots chosen, the acting, the way it's edited together. It, it really does just work like gangbusters there. But um, yeah, the last 10 minutes of this movie are incredible. The the last half hour is, you know, I think you had said when we were texting about this, that this is a reverse when a stranger calls. Yes. Where when a stranger calls had an amazing first 20 minutes and then the rest was kind of what it was. This is almost the reverse. It takes a while to get in. But once you're in that final act, it is uh, all really good. It's really, really good. And and yeah. And so um. Alex stumbles out of the school and he's unmasked in front of the crowd. Uh, and Kim stops Detective McBain from shooting him, but he dies in her arms anyway, but not before telling her what it's all about. And I, there's, here's where I have some questions. One, I'm not sure why Alex died. Like earlier in the fight, Kim hit him with the axe, but it didn't seem like a fatal blow. It was more like with the blunt end of it. Now, maybe it caused some internal trauma or something like that, but it's not clear. It, it I wasn't sure just why he died. Like, did he die of a broken heart like Padme in, in Revenge of the Sith? I, I'm not sure. But the other issue, I the other question I have, no, I, I have several more questions. I have more questions, Rob. I'm not done with questions. Um, the issue of the lipstick. Oh, now, sure. Earlier yeah. in the film, Alex and Kim's mother remarks that her lipstick is missing. Enough so that you know that it's going to come back. And when Kim takes off the sparkly mask, Alex has lipstick smeared all over his face. But there's no mention of it. There's no explanation for it. It, it. Like, I think we're supposed to put something together that maybe he was trying to take on the persona of his sister. But it's unclear. Like, are they trying to do like a psycho thing? Or was it something that was like originally in the script and got cut? And all that's left, the vestigial tail of that is the lipstick. I don't know. I, I don't either. I mean, it's a disturbing look when he sure. takes the mask off, but he, I also am not sure about what that is. Um, um, I did think there was more genuine emotion with Jamie Lee Curtis uh, and, and you know, her brother. Basically, you get, you, you get the sense the family is completely destroyed now. And, and Jamie Lee Curtis is great as, like, her brother is dying in her arms. And... You know, the, the one thing that was also odd there, my third question about the ending of this movie is that Leslie Nielsen just disappears. Like, where is he? 
dude, your son just killed a bunch of people and is now dying on the steps of the school that you are the principal of. Where are you? Like he's he's in for a shock when he comes back from wherever the hell he is. Yeah, they because they had him leave the prom. He's there at the beginning of the prom section. Yes, but then they have to have him go to maintain red herring status. Uh, but they do never motivate it because they want it to be a red herring. Uh, but then they never explain it on the flip side um, or have it come back, which you know, it's. It, I will say at that point, emotionally, it feels a little beside the point because it is so between her and her brother. And, you know, we know the family's just going to be wrecked, um, as you'd said. So I I can forgive it a little bit. I just thought it was weird because not only is he their parent, he is the principal of the school. So he's got dual roles to be there. And I'm just like, you know, it was a weird thing. And and the end was great. And then there's like a couple of weird things that I was just like, wait, why? Like, Leslie, can we get him out of his trailer? Like, I, I, like, I, 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 you know, he strikes me as the model of professionalism. I would think that if you needed him, he'd be there. Um, oh, but to, to tie this back to the beginning, which is that when we were talking about the characters that were set up as red herrings, or whatever. Um, so Kim's brother was walking along in that opening. Uh, yes. He decided he didn't want to go in to the old abandoned building because he's smart. Uh, But he supposedly walked on elsewhere, but then we find out in this end sequence that he did witness what had happened uh, and saw it all and has been, uh, you know, stewing and going crazy this whole time. At that beginning, he's the only character who we put on the, who the movie puts on the scene, who then doesn't die or isn't part of the conspiracy. And then they never treat him as a red herring. It, it, exactly. And, and, and even the, that opening sequence, he is wearing an identical shirt to Robin just to tie them in. And I know they're twins and twins are sometimes dressed alike, but usually not male, female twins when they reach like the age of 10. Like you're not going to dress them the same. Um, but like they are dressed in identical shirts just to sort of visually tie them together even more. But yeah, the fact that he's not made, you know, the, the, the film de-emphasizes Alex and emphasizes all these other random people, most of whom do not have motives for murder, uh, at least that we know of, is is sort of a, a tell, uh, if you will. Um, which I think brings us to our second film today, which was also shot in Canada, but set in the USA, also stars Jamie Lee Curtis, and also makes strong use of red herrings, but in a different way. This is Terror Train. Terror Train. Everybody take off your mask. Hey, 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 take it easy, man. What are you doing? Oh, my God. Stay with your date. I don't want to get back on that track. For the students aboard, it's going to be the one party to end them all. They're always walking out of my parties, but this time, you can't. 
Produced by Harold Greenberg, Sandy Howard, and Daniel Grodnick, Terror Train was written by D.Y. Drake and directed by Roger Spottiswood, who would later go on to direct the Pierce Brosnan, uh, James Bond film, Tomorrow Never Dies. The film was conceived of by Grodnick as, quote, Halloween on a train. And Grodnick actually got the blessing of his friends, John Carpenter and Deborah Hill, before he proceeded with the idea. Uh, it stars Jamie Lee Curtis, Ben Johnson, Hart Bachner, Ellis. Booby, Hans, Booby, I'm your white knight from Die Hard. Uh, has Sandy Curry, Timothy Weber, Derek McKinnon, and of course, David Copperfield as the magician. Um, like Prom Night, this film focuses on a killer who is seeking revenge for a specific wrong committed by a specific group of people. In the flashback scene at the opening, uh, we see a prank being pulled by a group of college kids on shy and awkward student Kenny Hampson, where he's lured into a bedroom with the promise of sex, but instead finds himself in bed with a corpse. The perpetrators are pre-med and got it from the university hospital. And Kenny is traumatized, as one might imagine, and is forced to like leave school and enter a psychiatric hospital. The action then jumps ahead three years when most of these same students rent a train for their big New Year's Eve costume party in their senior year. What they don't know is a killer is on board, hunting them one by one. Um, in a way, Rob, I think Terror Train feels like the inverse of New Year's Evil. Uh, aside from the fact that both takes place on New Year's, but in that film, we knew the killer's face, but not his identity or motive. Here, we know the killer's identity and motive, but not his face. I love this movie. Terror Train oh, it's great. Is, is a favorite. I I watch it every couple of years. Uh, I, I take the time. Uh, in part, I was also uh, someone who as a child saw David Copperfield live three times. That may have something Me to too. do. Me too. I yeah, did too. Yeah. But the, the big thing, you know, it's not Halloween, right? Halloween no. is a transcendent changed slashers forever kind of a thing. But right. what I will say is um, Prom Night, is uh it's low budget it's it's well made i'd be like it's competent filmmaking it's competent mm -hmm. low budget filmmaking roger spottiswood with terror train and this is his first credited feature film yes this feels like a film that someone makes 10 or 15 films into their career it yeah. is so rock solid it's not as viscerally terrifying as halloween it's not trying to this feels much more like the and it's funny because it was, again, I think outside the system, but this feels like yeah. a mainstream studio kind of horror movie, you know, of, of the era where you have it's it's expertly made every all of the, the craft seems to be fantastic. 
it has scary parts, but there's just a different feel to it. It feels more like a thrill ride, whereas Halloween, while thrilling, feels dangerous. Um, and, and there's room for both. I like both at different times. Um, um yes, I, yes to all that. I, I think there's one interesting thing in this movie is, as I said, we don't really know the killer's face. Um, and one reason for that is the killer takes advantage of the fact that it's a costume party to keep switching costumes. Like Michael Myers is always Michael Myers. Like he's got that Michael Myers mask that we, you know, refer to it as a Michael Myers mask. But here, the killer, you know, he, he his first disguise, he's like this Groucho Marx character. Uh, you know, he's a, he's a Groucho Marx man. Later, he's a lizard man. Later, he's he's an old witch. And and it's it's an interesting. It's an interesting, uh, you know, uh, thing to do to keep the, you know, the audience guessing is who the killer actually is. Honestly, I don't think they use that trope enough, like because it, it, a fair amount of the kills happen off screen. So, like to, you know, to use that that device of is that the killer or is that the actual person? Um, I, I honestly think they could have used it more, but but it was really clever for sure, and it, it's great. And another thing in conjunction with that um, is. A train is very close quarters. It is oh, yeah. packed. Now, obviously, sometimes there are cars that you're alone in that train car. But in general, you're around. And I really love the way that they have the killer, sometimes through costume use, able to kill people when other people are in even the same train car. The, that bathroom yeah. kill, uh, for instance. Yeah. And they keep coming back to that bathroom uh, in interesting ways. I just love, um, you know, not dissimilar from the uh, the movie theater kill uh, at the beginning yeah. of He Knows You're Alone, but I just think mu- like much more consistently that way and just, I think, uh, at a higher level. Well, yeah, to that effect, like that the, there's like the, that the first kill that happens actually happens before they get on the train um, where... Uh, one of the, the the first victim is Ed, who's dressed as Groucho Marx, and and appear it appears as if he's been stabbed through the stomach with a sword. And Ed's a practical joker, so no one believes the it's a real murder when in fact it is. Uh, and then you know, then the, the the killer takes that costume. Ed never even poor Ed never even gets on the train. He's just you know he's left on the tracks for dead. But it, it's a great example of what this movie does with misdirection. Um, I want to mention that the party that these guys throw is epic. I mean, they rent a train, they hire a magician, they have a live band. Um, do they hire a magician? Well, yes, that's true. Like the, there's the question of do they, yes, you're right. That That is point taken. Yes, they don't, they might not actually have hired the magician, although it's unclear. But like what I find odd is that it's a New Year's party. Like, Colleges are usually pretty quiet around New Year's because everybody's home between semesters. And it felt like it either could have been like an end of year party or it could have been just a Halloween party. But I feel like, oh, you wanted it New Year's. So the temperature outside was cold enough that they had to get back on the train, even though the killer was on board. Yeah. And I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll give them that. It did give me a little bit of a. I think that early eighties era, you had a little bit of New Year's on a train in the in the air because a couple years later, another Jamie Lee Curtis film, Trading Places, absolutely, absolutely, a lot of Act Threes on that train for New Year's Eve. Uh, so maybe maybe she gave some story pointers. I don't know. I guess. Uh, well, I got to tell you, Rob. Let, let, just s- straight up, 
this movie has a train and it has magic. And those are two of my favorite things are trains and magic. Like I am the perfect audience member for a magician because I am continually amazed but never actually go so far as to try and figure out the trick. Like there's the bit in, in early on, David Copperfield is doing this close-up magic illusion where he puts a cigarette through a quarter. And I'm like, literally like sitting in front of my computer. Like, like how did he do that? Like, I know it's a movie and they can edit that stuff, but nevertheless, I'm like magic and trains, man, magic and trains. I will not reveal the secret, Chris, but uh, as a, as a recovering magician myself, I, uh, I did, I, I was a I was a performer in high school. I did uh, children's parties, corporate events. Uh, oh, absolutely, yeah, yeah. But um, that trick is not has nothing to do with camera effects. He can do that live. Right I didn't in front of your think face. so. Not a camera thing. It's so cool. Like, I mean, how did he? And then it he pulls it out again. It's and I was really watching because it's again. I am. If you're a magician, you want me in your audience. I am the ideal. I'm like the opposite of Hart Bogner in this movie, who wants nothing to do with magic. I am I am the ideal audience member for magic. Which I will say, Hart Hart and his dislike of magic, I totally I totally get it. Um I you know, I love magic. I thought this is the most unbelievable thing about this film, is that literally every other college frat and sorority member is so excited for magic all all the time. And I just thought, ah, no one wants to go off and just, you know, drink and have sex. Uh, in well, this yeah, but after the magic, part. man, I, wanna, you know, <laughs> uh, I mean, there's also like, again, trains are also like, so there's a scene where the engineer and the conductor are talking about the future of trains and the engineers like adamant that they're going to make a comeback. I am 100% with that guy. Trains are the future of America. They are the, our past and glorious future. Trains. When's the last time someone built a shopping mall next to a train, Chris? That's all I'm saying. Uh, who goes to shopping malls anymore? But the problem with this train is that the owner is so cheap, Chris, that he refuses <laughs> to put a radio on the train, which is... Yeah, I, I had that same note, and I was like, yeah, I don't buy that. I don't buy that. It's not 1880. It's 1980. There's a radio on that train. Because as cheap as the as the owner might be, uh, having a radio that might save the whole train, which is even more expensive. But I, I will say to go back to them talking about the future of trains. And there are other conversations like that amongst the college students as well. So this this is a film that does seem to have taken kind of a, that from Halloween, that mm -hmm. lesson of... You know, in order to make us care about the possible victims, to give us some of the slice of life, uh, again, it's not, none of, a lot of these conversations are not driving story necessarily. They no. are characterization to get us to care. The exception being, um, oh my goodness, I'm sorry, Elena and all of this discussions about, uh, you know, Mo and her relationship and her relationship with, um, oh goodness. Um, oh, oh, it's, it's, it's Doc, Mitchie and Doc. It's the, 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 the main, uh, the main couples are Alana and Mo, which is T Jamie Lee Curtis and Timothy Weber and Mitchie and Doc, Sandy Curry and Hart Bachner. Now there's an odd dynamic between these four because Alana and Mitchie are best friends and Mo and Doc are best friends. But Alana and Doc seem to actively dislike each other. And this is, I, I think, where we get into 
some of the gender and sexuality issues that are embedded in this film and that I think are, are give it an interesting dimension. Hart Bachner's doc is a very overly hyper-masculine type of guy. He's, you know, he's a man's man and, you know, an alpha male. And that, I mean, his name, I swear to God, is Doc Manley. Uh, but I think there's every indication that Doc is a closeted homosexual who has strong feelings for his friend Mo. I think I think that it is he seems very keen for Mo and Alana to break up. Uh, when Mo laments that Alana might leave him, Doc says, "Well, you know, you've always got me, man." And it, it's almost as if Alana and Doc are competing for Mo. And and despite his all his bravado, because he's he's the ringleader of the prank at the beginning. Despite all of that, he shows very little actual interest in doing stuff with women. Like he's he's alone in in, in the car with like. And just does he doesn't see, there he doesn't seem to give a shit. Um, he's not only dressed like a monk, he behaves like one. Yeah, and I'll I'll tack a little thing on here uh, to it, uh, which is in the beginning the setup, you know the the scene in the past that opens where they get mm-hmm. Kenny right. That whole prank, which uh, one of the reasons Elena hates him is that she was made to be a the main lure for Kenny into the prank. And yes. supposedly it was Doc's idea. The setup is, is Doc tells Kenny that Elena has the hots for him and that, uh, and then they get her to go upstairs into the frat house and Kenny is made to follow. And Elena is hiding in there. Uh, mm-hmm. She's getting him to go and it is, uh, you know, and then Kenny winds up kissing the corpse, right? It's, it is, it is like, you know, I mean, again, I, unlike the thing at the beginning of Prom Night, which revol- results in someone's death, this doesn't result in death, but it's traumatizing. Yeah, it, it, the POV, you're definitely in Kenny's headspace for this with the, like, how freaky it is. It's, yeah. You're given that. But one could say Doc arranged a prank to punish Kenny for being sexually attracted to a woman. Yes. I have, you know, I have no idea about any of this stuff. Uh, also, you know. You know, just to be clear, that is not, uh, I don't think that the, you know, the film's endorsing that view of, of all, you know, of all people, but no, no, uh, no. It, it is interesting that, that it was done that way, because as you say, when Doc, the only moments of Doc being genuine and not putting up a, a front, it, it's very clearly Doc is always being phony. He's always putting yeah. on a show, except for those few moments when he is alone with Mo. And yes. the, the he he becomes a completely different person who who is real and somewhat tender it seems right or at least yes. more emotionally vulnerable yeah and and I also want to mention with Kenny um, Kenny is is sort of on the other end of the scale in terms of apparent masculinity from the the image that Doc presents we don't see a whole lot of Kenny in the opening sequence like we they they specifically, you know, you get like kind of side views of him. You don't really get a whole lot of him, but he seems to be very shy, physically rather slight. And you might even say a a more, more feminine individual. Like, uh, you know, he's a bit more on the feminine side. That doesn't mean he's gay. In fact, he has every interest of the possibility of a sexual encounter with a woman. Uh, You know, he seems to be very keen on that. And, but, but I think if you if we go with the the hypothesis that that doc is is 
is gay, but can't admit it to himself, especially in 1980. It's not like, you know, he, he it's, you know, he's growing up in the present day where, where things are a lot different. You know, this is a guy who was probably born in like the mid sixties or even early sixties, you know, and, and, you know, he's in college, you know, he's finishing college around 1980 and has ha- struggled with these feelings probably his whole life to the point where he can't admit them because people didn't do that. And there he sees this much more feminine guy who is clearly heterosexual and wants to punish him for it. And that is what I think the opening of this movie is. That is the, the extra layer that is underneath this um, in that I think, you know, it gives it a, a, a depth that a lot of these movies don't have. And it's really interesting. Um, the film plays a really clever game of misdirection. It's, oh, it's yeah. got a theme of magic and the misdirection is, is throughout because magicians, you know, they do, you know, they wave their hands around when in reality they're doing something else that you don't see um, here. Well, let me, let me say this. It is fairly clear from the outset that Kenny is the killer, but who Kenny is, is unclear. Because, you know, there's a photo in a yearbook. The students start to become convinced that the magician, played by David Copperfield, is Kenny. Despite the fact that he doesn't look like him. Maybe they, you know, it's like, oh, he maybe had plastic surgery or something like that. And he has come back as the magician to exact his revenge. And they almost like go and go after him. Like they, they, the, the, the group kind of, you know, it's like, oh, hey, the magician's back there. And they're going to like go because they believe he's the killer. It's, it's a really interesting thing. And they layer in some extras there. Uh, the magician is interested romantically in Elena. Uh, then you also have the magician is interested in tormenting Doc. Yes. Uh, you get the yearbook thing later on in the film where it's revealed yeah. that Kenny was into magic. Dun, yes. Dun, dun. Uh and so they're piling a lot of, and the magician disappears at, at all the right times for a yep. murder to take place. And it is a, you know, whereas we, we talked about some of the more ham fisted red herrings of prom night. Here is a red herring that is incredibly well done that you become, you by the, are, are like the, the characters in the film become convinced that the magician is Kenny and he is the killer. Well, the, here's the twist folks. After an absolutely brutal fight between the mass killer and Jamie Lee Curtis, it's revealed that Kenny is actually the magician's female assistant. And his slight build and more feminine features lend themselves to this this female disguise. And it's a great reveal. Yeah, and um, this goes against to spot us would and the direction. When you watch the film knowing this, when you see all of the shots that include the magician with the assistant, the assistant's usually, um, you know, back in frame. Um, You're never getting close ups. And, you know, the first time watching this thing, I had no clue. I was. But but it's the best kind of twist in that I had no clue and was totally floored. And then when I went back and rewatched, you watch it and go, of course. Uh, So it's, you know, it's, it's not a cheat. It's, it's totally all there. And that's all part of the, the, the tension and the, just laying all the breadcrumbs out just kind of in a, in a very great pacing. Oh, and it's, it's great. It's really well paced. And again, the layering of action and theme with, you know, the magic and misdirection as being part of all of this. 
uh, I think is just very, very well done. And uh, the only thing I didn't like, I will say, the only thing I didn't like is that at the end, the train conductor played by Ben Johnson comes in and kills Kenny by hitting him with a shovel and knocking him out of the train. And it's clearly designed like to echo sort of Loomis shooting Michael. But in that movie, you know, Halloween, Loomis is hunting Michael. Like he, he's got a motive um, here. It just feels like they didn't want Jamie Lee Curtis to kill him. And I'm like, she, by that point feels totally capable of defending herself. She doesn't need this guy to come in and do it for. Yeah, absolutely. Um, But you know, I, I, I would agree. I guess they've just, it also kind of felt like the the kind of movie where um, Ben Johnson's character might've had to get sacrificed at some point. Yeah. Uh, it, it felt like that was getting set up. He's a guy who's it's, he's at the end of his career. He keeps talking about retirement. Um, but oh, I yeah. suppose I'm not going to knock you for having a happier ending where poor Ben Johnson, uh, you know, actually gets to live and maybe, maybe he gets to sell those RVs, Chris. Oh, <laughs> uh, you know, um, I also want to point out, we have another decapitation in this film. Although it happens off screen, Doc's severed head is found in a bunk bed in one of the in one of the compartments. And I want to point out that in 1980, there was something that was really the year of decapitations. Friday the 13th, Prom Night, He Knows You're Alone, which features the head in the fish tank. And this film all came out in that year. Apparently, there was just something in the water in 1979, 1980 for cutting people's heads off, which is not something the original Halloween does. It's um it's interesting because all of those movies, um, which all came out within like a six month span, were all basically made concurrently. They're not they're not building off of each other. They're all kind of building off of Halloween in different ways, um, and and they kind of constitute sort of the first wave of post Halloween slashers. Um, next week we'll be moving ahead to 1981 with a trio of slasher films that are set primarily at schools. And I think what we'll start to see is the influence that Friday the 13th has, because Friday the 13th was unquestionably the biggest hit of these 1980 wave, uh, this 1980 wave of slasher films. Uh, and so we'll start to see that influence creep in now that you're getting some of the movies that come out in 81 and onward. So uh, next week we have a trio of films set at primarily at schools with Final Exam, Graduation Day, and Happy Birthday to Me. Um Again, thank you so much for listening. Again, we are your hosts, Chris Iannacone and Rob Lamorges. If you've enjoyed the show, please consider subscribing and following us on Twitter and Instagram at GetMeAnotherPod. And if you like, please tell your friends, tell your enemies, tell people that you don't know. Just come across on the street. Be like, hey, you want a good movie podcast? Get me another pod. And join us next time as we continue to explore what happens when Hollywood says... Get me another.